1: It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You can just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com host.
2: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. and now get $250 when you join ramp for free just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by sutton bank and celtic bank members of the ic terms and conditions apply
3: it's brand new season two
1: Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel and I am Matt and today we're answering your listener questions.
0: All right, Joel. It's Listener Question Monday. We've got five awesome questions from our listeners and we're going to answer all five of them. (laughs) We'll see if I have the stamina, Matt. (laughs) Maybe we'll only get to three of them. (laughs) Well, a few that we are going to get to are about uh, getting a credit card or at least trying to get a credit card while you have frozen credit. We're going to discuss paying off student loans or investing that money instead, uh, as well as making a large purchase like buying a car, When you don't have a local brick and mortar bank, how do you go about doing that? We're going to get to those plus two others on this episode. I'm looking forward to it, Matt. But before we get to these listener questions,
1: there's something you wanted to talk about. And it's something that that we've had to deal with a couple of times recently as uh, our own kind of small business. And that's hiring other people to do things for us. And in particular, we've hired a couple of friends to, to do a couple of
0: projects. And we, we learned a couple of lessons along the way. Yeah. And I think this is important for us to cover because as our lives become kind of more complicated and intertwined with maybe those who live in our neighborhood, our friends, if a lot of us are, are starting side hustles, sometimes we are looking to, to do business with friends of ours as well. We want to support them, but also it kind of makes sense from a doing business standpoint, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we asked a friend of ours to do some professional work for us. And and we will not say their name as... We want to make sure that things stay confidential, right? We'll call him Voldemort. <laughs> You're still on your Harry Potter kick. <laughs> and we know. still haven't talked about it. No, we will. Uh, we need to soon. But early on, I had asked about price because this is something that you and I, we wanted to keep at a certain point. Uh, we didn't want to spend too much money. You're right. I mean, this is how to money. <laughs> but the problem is we didn't really address that question head on before we started the work and we kind of didn't come back around to it until the very end. And it ended up costing us way more than we thought it was going to cost. It was about three times more, I think, than, than we were wanting to spend, which is a huge discrepancy. <laughs> you know, $6 instead of two. It was. Uh... Yeah, there you go. That's, <laughs> that was the right ratio, at least. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, so the question then comes down to us asking this person about the cost, about the price. And so the question that we want to ask now is, is that frugal or is that cheap? So I think the way we went about it was the right way to go about it. And I
1: think there is Which is how. Okay, so let's talk it's, about yeah, it. Yeah. So we we basically asked our friend, we said, hey, you know, we didn't come up with the pricing ahead of time. And so we're sorry, you know, we know we asked, but we never really honed in on it. We're so appreciative of your work. But we're just wondering if you could kind of tell us like how you came up with the price. And so we kind of put the ball in their court and they did a really good job of replying and being kind of understanding and apologizing that we didn't come up with any sort of a price ahead of time, knowing that that was something that that we had mentioned. And they explained, you know, the the reasoning behind their price. And they also at that point offered to to take, a, you know, a little bit off of, of the final price, which, yeah. was, which
0: was really kind because I think they understood that it was an awkward predicament on both sides. Yeah. And during that discussion, too, I'll, I'll say that we had the chance to also apologize because it was something that we, we did ask up front, but it's not something we followed up on. And so in both of our cases, it was sort of new territory. Yeah. Uh, this person hadn't done business this way. And this isn't something that you and I are, are were really used to as well. And so I think in both of our cases, what we learned was that communication is key, right? It's paramount that we talk about... The price, <laughs> this is coming from you and me. We talk about money all the time, but it's not, it's sort of something that kind of got pushed to the side a little bit. We we're focused on the task at hand. Uh, we weren't overly focused on the cost, but that ended up coming back to bite us. Yeah, and I will say too, money should
1: never, uh, hopefully, never come in between friendships. For instance, this was not just. 20 bucks more right than we were hoping to spend it was a good bit more than we were hoping to spend than we thought we were going to spend and and so yeah i think it could if we handled it poorly it could have kind of come between us, but we realize our friend does really good work. We're thankful for their help. It was really quick and yeah. thorough. And so it was one of those things where we learned a good lesson and I think we learned a good lesson together. And at the same time, paying them what they're worth and what they've asked for um, after that initial question that we asked about the pricing, it didn't make sense to try to push any further because they're a good friend and we don't want to yeah. ruin that. That's the most important part. And, and 20 bucks here or a hundred bucks there it doesn't matter in comparison to how much that friendship means to us. So yeah, I think when you're doing business with a friend, you want to make sure you have all these details clarified on the front end, do a better job than we did (laughs) on this one.
0: (laughs) Learn from our experience. Yeah.
1: But we had another friend uh, do, do a project for us recently too, Matt. And that went swimmingly because I think we did kind of actually get those things out on the front end. We have this beautiful table that we're sitting at that our friend Pat built. And that was a great transaction. So yeah, I think so much of it does come down to that early on communication, making sure you both have the same expectations. And if something does come up in the process, it's best to to err on the side of friendship as opposed to money.
0: Yes. And so for all the folks out there who are looking to maybe hire a friend, make sure you have those talks on the front end. Make sure you communicate very clearly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny, Matt. We work together, right? We're best
1: friends. And there is something too, a little more difficult at times about working with your best friend. It can change your relationship. It can change the dynamics. And sometimes your best friend, when you start to work with them, doesn't feel like your best friend anymore. I think you and I have done a pretty good job trying to maintain what are you saying? <laughs> are you about to break up with me? <laughs> so I got this new best friend on, on the podcast. He's real cool. That's cold, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I think we've done a good job at maintaining best friend status, even while working together and and kind of creating something. But there are a lot of businesses that don't thrive <laughs> when best friends create them together. I know it can be
0: really, really hard for a lot of people. Yeah, just watch uh, the social network. (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know why we've been able to do it well. Uh, Exactly. I don't think I can pinpoint anything
0: necessarily, at least not off the top of my mind. But I'm glad we have been able to. Yeah. And when we do, we'll write a book. (laughs) And that'll ruin us. (laughs) All right, man. Let's go ahead and introduce our beer for this episode. This is another beer that you and I picked up on a bike ride uh, from a local market uh, that we check out sometimes. And it's called Inexplicable Unease. And this is a beer by Bramari Brewing Company out of Asheville. You and I, we've actually shared one of their beers uh, in the past before, another sour IPA. But yeah, man, looking forward to enjoying this one with you on the episode and sharing our thoughts at the end of the episode. Should be good, man.
1: All right, let's get on to the listener questions for this episode. And if anybody out there wants to submit a question for us to take on a upcoming Ask HTM episode, just go to howtomoney.com slash ask. And there's a really simple directions right there for you uh, to be able to submit your audio question for the show. Uh, Matt, let's get to the first one. This one's about how big of an emergency fund do we really need to have?
5: Hey guys, this is Laura from the Twin Cities in Minnesota. It's okay if you think my accent is weird, it comes with the territory. Now for my question. Because of COVID-19 and generally sprucing up our financial practices, my husband and I have been working on the goal of saving three months worth of income into our emergency fund. This is to prevent risk if one of us loses our jobs. We've been great investors, but never saw a need to have a large liquid emergency fund until now. I have two questions about this. First question, what is the general best practice around how many months worth we should have? We have two right now working on the third month, but should we stop there? Is three months worth pretty good considering we're a dual income household, or would you say go for more? The trade-off, of course, is that the money could perform better if invested, but having it liquid is nice peace of mind. Second question, we've both been contributing to Roth IRAs for about eight years now, and I know that our contributions can be taken out without penalty in case of emergency, like a job loss. Do people generally count that dollar sum into the emergency fund total, or should that not be counted in? Should Roth IRA contributions be treated more like an untouchable safety net? Thanks for your help.
0: Laura, great question about safety nets, emergency funds, Roth IRAs, all these things that we love to talk about. And by the way, we love hearing your accent. <laughs> like, personally, I love getting listener questions where there's folks from all over the, not just the country, but the world. You're able to get a sense of the region a little bit that they're from, right? Based on these accents. Kind of like how we say y'all probably a lot. Yeah. Do you, th- do you wonder if people think that we have accents? I've always wondered that. And every time I ask somebody,
1: they seem to tell me that they don't think I have much of an accent. Mm-hmm. I know just saying y'all probably puts the impression in people's minds that we're hardcore Southerners. Yeah, we're Southerners. <laughs>
0: if you say y'all, you're, you're
1: from the South. Right. But my family's all from the Pacific Northwest. And so I think I think of myself as having a very neutral, almost no accent at all. But I could be wrong. I'd be interested to hear the feedback. Yeah, I feel like you have
0: a very kind of neutral radio voice, right? <laughs> I don't necessarily pinpoint you to a specific region. I, I feel like that I do sound kind of southern though. Like I grew up in Augusta, but the thing is with me, I feel like it's a southern accent mixed a little bit with like an Asian accent because my mom's <laughs> from Korea. <laughs> but my dad grew up in the Midwest as well, so I'm you know I don't really I feel like I don't really have a, a strong southern. Kind of dialect heritage, you know, when it comes to how I speak, but yeah. I have my own unique way of saying things. Oftentimes, well, Laura's got the Minnesota thing down pat, that's for
1: sure. <laughs> but Laura, we appreciate your question. Let's kind of let's kind of get to it. And emergency funds like can be this point of contention in the personal finance world. There are so many different rules of thumb that people have. And they can be helpful, but also it's not set in stone, right? There's nothing that you absolutely have to hit in order to be decent at personal finances. And how much you actually should have in an emergency fund is going to differ from personal finance nerd to personal finance nerd. Some people will think that we're being too conservative and some people will think the opposite, that we're being too risky. Uh, But I would say I prefer to have more of my money invested sitting on the sidelines. But that's also partly because a good portion of my investment portfolio is in real estate. It pays monthly dividends, essentially, whereas money that you have invested in the stock market, it doesn't do that, right? It is growing for the your eventual future, for your retirement. But having physical, tangible real estate where you have people paying you rent every single month gives you the opportunity to reap some of the rewards now. It offers that monthly cash flow. So my income is also pretty diverse with having a day job, having the real estate, a little bit of podcasting income. That means that my cash cushion can be smaller and I can still feel comfortable. So a couple of questions that you need to ask yourself in order to decide is how much of your income do you live on? I think that's one of the biggest questions that people need to ask themselves. Could you live on one income, right? You said you live in a dual income house if worse came to worse, could you live on one income? And if that's the case, I think you can get by on a smaller emergency fund on that two months. And also, do you work in a stable industry? And that question is of particular significance right now. If both you and your partner work in a stable industries and you feel like your jobs are pretty secure, then I think that also lends itself to the ability to have less of your money in an emergency
0: fund. And maybe on the flip side of this, you know, Laura, you mentioned the piece that having... An emergency fund brings like that's something really intangible that can't be quantified and and it's part of the reason that many people do opt for a larger emergency fund before investing more of that money i know for me uh six months is what i like to have you know in the bank account at this point you know having a larger family we're a little less flexible uh when it comes to being able to make changes to our expenses kind of on the dime like back when it was just me and kate back then i was really comfortable with just three months worth of living expenses but now for me it's six But here is the other thing. Even if you do have diversified income, there are still going to be these unforeseen emergencies that come up, right? Like, there are obviously widespread pandemics (laughs) that affect millions of people or billions of people. Yeah, the whole world. (laughs) That is something that happens, as we've seen. Or there might just be something that happens to you specifically, right? Like, maybe you're at fault in a car accident and you don't have enough coverage. And so they're going to maybe come after you for that additional money. There are some things that we feel that we have control over uh, that we can kind of wrap our minds around, right? Whether that be, okay, if I lose my job, this is what it would take to get by. If our household is reduced to one income, this is how we would make it work. Those events, yes, they are rare, but they do happen to people. Those are the things that we need to make sure that we don't discount as well and to make sure that we're saved up and well prepared for those. Yeah. You can't plan for everything,
1: right you can't plan for a
0: pandemic yeah. i don't think any of us had
1: an emergency fund that could survive
0: a long lasting pandemic, pandemic fund did you uh, <laughs> no i did not <laughs> your foresight is impeccable sir uh, but yeah but that's the thing though like you never know what's what's on the horizon but it really is such a hard balance to strike yeah. Yeah, it is. But I love to,
1: you know, Laura asked about the Roth IRA. And I think the Roth IRA is actually this this perfect vehicle. Matt, we talked about it back in episode 83. One of the reasons that we love the Roth IRA is that it can, if you've been contributing well to a Roth IRA over a good number of years, it can kind of function as a backup to the emergency fund that you have, right? That you could tap in case of an actual emergency. You're still hoping to never have to tap it, right? You're still hoping that the Roth money can grow until you eventually retire in your 50s 60s or 70s right but it's nice to know that that is a backup plan uh, and it also allows you i think to not be forced to have as much in just a liquid savings account and laura said that she and her partner have been contributing to that roth for eight years i think and eight years i mean she she and her partner that, that could be ninety thousand dollars total in contributions uh roughly right in that that area and that's a lot of money at your disposal that you can withdraw in in case of necessity so i think if you have been contributing to a Roth for somewhere in that seven, eight, 10, 12 year range. You've been funding it well. That does give you, I think, the added ability to have a slightly smaller emergency fund. I'm not going to say a whole lot smaller, but slightly yeah. smaller uh, and and to be able to focus more on investing than continuing to ramp up your level of savings.
0: Yeah. Lord, the, the cash is trash mentality like that has really come up against some legitimate opposition during this pandemic having cash in a savings account it's crucial for everyone but you know how much is really up to you in your specific circumstances in your case if you are living on a good bit less than what you bring in both of you have you know those roths uh, as a backup you know, it's definitely okay to invest maybe beyond that three or maybe, you know, for me, I would feel comfortable, you know, investing beyond that six months worth of uh, living expenses. I think Joel, you probably would side more maybe on the three month side of things, right? Yeah.
1: yeah, typically. I mean, but also again, yeah, so much of it depends on those specific circumstances. The fact that I invest in real estate is is a big game changer in the fact that I don't feel like I need quite as much. in in an emergency fund, but everybody has kind of their own particular details. Some of us are in really unsteady jobs or jobs that you might see a whole lot of income one month, no income for two or three months. It really, really depends on your specific circumstances. And I think, too, what you said, Matt, is so true. Cash is not trash. And I think a lot of people, that's like a a, a, when the stock market's booming, that's something that people say, like, why would you have any cash? Yeah, folks said that for the last 10 years, basically. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) And that's just not true. And we always say that having some amount of cash On hand is important. Got to have that margin. To weather storms like this. And so, yeah, Laura, best of luck deciding what's right for you. It's hard to give you a specific number, (laughs) but hopefully that gives you some questions to ask, some things to think through as you're figuring out what's best for you and best for your family. All right, Matt, we got more questions to get to though. And the next one after the break is going to be about saving for a newborn baby. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work
0: hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net
1: using Policy Genius. Head to PolicyGenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's PolicyGenius.com. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000-plus five-star reviews. Dot com slash how to money that's spelled k-a-c-h-a-v-a and get 10 percent off your first order that's k-a-c-h-a-v-a dot com slash how to money
0: all right joel we're back from the break and let's take our next question which is about baby money Ooh, baby's making that money hey matt
2: and joel this is james from lexington kentucky my wife kate and i just had a baby boy his grandparents gave him some cash as a baptism gift and were wondering the best thing to do with it and any more he might receive in the future. I can think of two options. One, open a custodial savings account at a high-yield online bank. Or two, open a 529, investing for college in a low-cost index fund at Fidelity or Vanguard. I'm leaning towards the 529. Based on family history, he's extremely likely to go to college. I know from previous episodes that investing my money for his college education in a 529 is low priority compared to investing for my retirement, but it's his money we're talking about, not mine. The safety and flexibility of a savings account are definitely a consideration, but the higher yields of the stock market are really tempting. Looking forward to hearing what y'all think.
0: Thanks in advance. Bye. James, first off, man, congrats on the baby boy. That's exciting. Yeah. By the way, James, I have a wife named Kate and we just had a baby boy, so... So much in common. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into James's question about saving for
1: for his child. And yeah, I think... James, you're on the right track here, right? The bank account isn't really going to grow very much, and especially in today's environment where savings rates are mega depressed. They're really low. And I think I've seen you know, our our listeners kind of griping about it a little bit in the Facebook group because it's true. I mean, every every few months, it seems like you're getting an email from your bank and they're saying, we just lowered your savings rate just a little bit yeah, more.
0: Saw it drop again today. <laughs> Literally.
1: <laughs> yeah. Did you really? Oh my <laughs> gosh. Yeah. So it's it's kind of unfortunate. It's a bummer to see that, but that's kind of part of the environment that we're in right now, but really the question is, do you need either of those things for your baby, right? You're not going to see any fluctuations on your balance of the money that would be in a savings account really, but you will see the value of that money decrease over time as inflation erodes its purchasing power. So having money just stashed in savings for an extended period of time for a small child who doesn't need access to it just doesn't really make that much sense. On average, you're looking at roughly like a 7% return if that money was invested And the worst 20-year period, the worst uh, returns in a 20-year period since the 1970s was 6.4%. That sounds really high. (laughs) That sounds a lot more than like your 1.35 online savings account right now, right? And if you're looking at the worst 15-year period, well, the return was still 3.7%, which is way more than you'd see in a savings account. So I think putting that money in a 529 plan and investing inside of that for your young child is, is a really good
0: way to go. And James, you also mentioned the flexibility that the savings account offers. But it doesn't really sound like you need that flexibility, right? Since there is a high likelihood of him going to college. Uh, So yeah, a 529 plan for your little man is going to be ideal. Um, And 529s are... Pretty flexible you know, in themselves, right? If you happen to have another baby, you could always use those funds for the next kiddo, or you can even put those funds to use for yourself or another family member. There's a lot of flexibility within the 529 plan. But the assumption, of course, is that it's always going to go to some type of higher education. Yeah, you can always change the beneficiary to somebody else in your family, Matt.
5: That's
1: a- another awesome point, right? That's a good bit of flexibility for people that do open up a 529 plan. Another really interesting thing about 529 plans, James, is you said you're from Kentucky. Interestingly enough, you probably shouldn't be opening a 529 account through the Kentucky Saves program, right? So I, I like to look up what state people are from and kind of see what the fees are inside of the investments for your state's plan and the fees are higher than what a lot of other states offer. And the great thing about 529 accounts is you aren't confined to opening a 529 account within your state. You can take your money to any state plan, right? All the 50 states have plans that they offer and you can take your money to any single one of those you're not stuck with your states yeah so you can get that exotic hawaii plan <laughs> but <laughs> make i would, it, make it feel like you're on vacation <laughs> that's true that's true i would say go for a little bit
0: of midwestern grit go with the ohio plan yeah yeah. that's gonna serve you a little bit better i feel like ohio comes up often when it comes to like fiscal responsibility is that just an impression or is that factual well i i would say
1: all right so i don't have any statistics to back me up on this yeah. but midwesterners always the most fiscally responsible Generally speaking, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Generally speaking, Midwesterners are vastly more fiscally responsible than any other region in the country yeah (laughs) Yeah, so ohio's college advantage 529 plan uh, is probably the best plan out there when it comes to low fee investment options they offer a lot of our favorite vanguard funds matt if you want another option to consider utah's my 529 plan also has some really low cost investment options as well so yeah we would say 529 plan seems to make sense for your young child it offers you enough flexibility you don't really need the safety of a savings account and in the end when it's time for him to to go to to go to school, you're going to have a lot more money for him to be able to get an education.
0: Yeah, so best of luck to you, James. I'm sure you're going to make the, the best choice for you and your family. And our next question has to do with uh, frozen credit, as well as a, a little ethical quandary.
4: Hey guys, my younger sister may have thought of a loophole that can get a good discount at some retail stores. As I'm sure you may know, many retail stores now offer credit cards that have pretty high interest rates and are generally pretty bad deals. Now, I've never been interested in these, but... I know that some stores will offer a pretty good discount if you sign up for them at the register. You get the discount and you walk away, whether you get approved or not, although approval takes a couple of business days from what I understand. Now I haven't tried this myself, but my sister seems to think that if you have your credit frozen, you will automatically be denied for the card if you do sign up. But you still get the discount at the point of purchase. Now my question is, Will you damage your credit by doing this? I know that a hard credit inquiry will slightly ding your credit score, and doing it more will uh, damage it more. But will this still be true if your credit is frozen? Uh, would it be worth it for me to awkwardly send it the register filling out this form to save, you know, $100 or more on a big purchase, especially if it doesn't impact my credit score? Heck, if, even if it does impact my credit score, I have a pretty good score, and I could take a ding every once in a while to save, you know, a few hundred bucks. What do you guys think? Would it be worth it? If so, how often do you think would be safe to do this? Thanks for making a great podcast.
0: Joel, man, this is a really interesting question, right? Because, you know, getting a deal is not always black and white. Uh, it involves maybe this, this sort of gray area. And so that's why I guess we're kind of calling this into the sort of ethics 101 how to money episode. <laughs> but at the same time, it's, it's something that's important to, to discuss, right? And so, Jacob, if you know that you're going to be declined since your credit score uh, is frozen then like essentially you're going to be a part of a transaction where you're intentionally not holding up your end of the bargain. In that transaction, you're basically saying that I'm going to agree to sign up for this card in order to get a discount. And but if again if you know that you're not going to get approved for the card because your credit is frozen, that to me doesn't quite feel right.
1: Yeah, plus, Jacob, there's a good chance that if you're applying for this card in person at the store, that you're just going to get denied for the card because they can't pull your credit score. And when you get denied, you're not going to have access to the discount anyway, right? And so you you might just end up standing there at the counter with people looking at you and then hanging your head a little bit because (laughs) you just got rejected for this credit card. I mean, it could just add to the quandary and to the difficulty of this whole situation. So I would say I don't really like the idea of applying for for store cards anyway. I don't think store cards are a good kind of credit for people to have. And obviously you're not trying to get the store card, you're just trying to get the discount. I tend to agree with Matt, though. I think if you know <laughs> that your credit's frozen, and you're getting rejected, and you're sort of just doing it to get the discount, I think that there are other ways to get a discount, right? Signing up for a company email list in order to score five, 10 20 bucks off, you know, a, a particular purchase, there are other ways to get discounts granted, not quite as rich, probably as signing up for that store credit card. Um, but I would say Yeah, this is probably something to be avoided. For the kind of nuanced morality, if you if you if you might say that, and so yeah, I would say that this is likely more uh, of a cheap move than than a frugal move, if we're talking about it in those terms.
0: Yeah, and, and additionally, Jacob, like oftentimes you're going to get approved or denied within like seconds. It's not a matter of a couple days. Sometimes it's, it's literally within seconds. If you apply for a credit card online, you find out immediately whether or not you get approved. And so I think you would find out right then and there that your credit is frozen and then you're going to be stuck without that discount.
1: Yeah, Matt, typically, you, too, you're willing to ding your credit. I like your approach because you're often willing to use your score in, in order to get you benefits like sign up bonuses from
0: credit cards, right? And, and that's just like a, you would say, a proper use of your credit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so let's kind of finish off this question under the assumption that, okay, let's say you unfreeze your credit. Is it worth signing up for some of these cards at the different stores? And yeah, I'm not at all above dinging my credit score a little bit in order to score a 10 to 20% discount. You know, 20% off a bigger ticket item could be some serious money. Like it all comes back to why it is that we have credit scores to begin with. So I'm all about putting a good score to use in order to realize those benefits. Um, You know, plus... If you're looking to apply for a new loan on something big, like a mortgage, like someone with a higher credit score, like maybe Jacob, uh, he can afford to lose some of those points because you don't need a perfect 850 in order to get the best terms. A lot of times, all you need is, you know, like 760 or higher. So you can afford some of those hard inquiries, you know, every couple months or so.
1: Yeah, I would say, too, that this is kind of more of an advanced level tactic that Jacob's trying to use. If you're not particularly in tune with your credit score, if you don't know kind of where you stand and realize the thresholds that you could be crossing, that could be costing you money in other ways. For instance, Matt, when we talk about credit, it can affect the amount you pay every month for car insurance or homeowner's insurance. It can just have all these wide ranging impacts on your life. Your credit score is so important in so many other financial areas. If you're looking to, to buy a car with a loan or you're buying a home, and you want the best terms for a mortgage having that high credit score is really important and so for a lot of people that might hear us answer this question if you're going to try to use your credit and be willing to get the dings in order to get perks well you have to make sure that it's not going to negatively affect you in other ways And the only way you can know that is by really digging into the specifics of what makes up a credit score and how that impacts your life. Right. And so, yeah, signing up at a site like creditkarma.com can be helpful. It can help you monitor your score and kind of come to grips with what makes up that credit score. But I would say following tracking your credit score. If you're going to implement something like this, a strategy like this is crucial to make sure that you're not burning yourself uh, trying to score a quick 20 or 30 bucks.
0: Yeah, man, monitoring is a crucial element to, you know, taking advantage of your credit score, of a good credit score. And you can go to annualcreditreport.com as well, because at this point you you can get a full credit report every single week. So now actually might be a great time to kind of play with the system a little bit, see how some of those hard inquiries affect your credit score. For me personally, I'm all about signing up for new credit cards and getting that sign up bonus. I'm I'm a big fan of doing that. You can <laughs> score some big bucks that way. That being said, I know that credit cards, they're not offering huge sign up bonuses like they once were but I'm still doing it. And I'm also monitoring my credit score just to make sure I am not overly negatively affecting my credit score.
1: Yeah, definitely. One of the bummers of being in a down economy is is less rich offers from the credit card companies right now. Yeah. Yeah, So, all right, Matt, we're going to get to a couple more questions, including that question about whether you should be investing more or paying down your student loans more quickly. We'll get to those right after the break. Dot com slash how to money. That's spelled K A C H A V A. And get ten percent off your first order. That's K A C H A V A dot com slash how to money. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together Matt for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations Or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
2: If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you.
0: All right, we are back from the break and let's hear a question from a recent graduate.
6: Hi Joel and Matt, this is Paige from Akron, Ohio. I'm a recent graduate and I'm just now getting into my job field. I'm very lucky to have work during this pandemic and oddly enough, I am starting a new job this upcoming week. My question is, should I be focusing only on paying down the ridiculous amount of student debt that I have or should I also be taking advantage Of the stock market right now and begin investing. I just recently refinanced my private student loans to a 10-year fixed rate loan at 5.43%. I have a plan to expedite that payment process to four years if I don't start investing, but I feel like I would be missing out on a really good opportunity to get my feet wet. My new job doesn't start a 401k plan until I have been working with them for a year. So I just, I'm not sure what to do right now. I would appreciate any advice that you have on this topic and thank you so much for your help and everything that you do.
1: Paige, first off, congrats on graduating. That's great. Also, congrats on having a job, coming straight out of school. Yeah. Also, sorry that you missed that normal graduation <laughs> ceremony. You know, it's funny, man. I didn't even go to mine. And so Oh, did you not? I did, didn't walk, Did man. you not walk? I... I think my mom was out of town, so it gave me the ability to actually do that, because if she was in town, she would have forced me <laughs> to be up there this on the stage. Walk
0: across the stage. I didn't walk with my overall giant class. I you know, went to UGA, but I did walk when it came to my specific college, so Grady College, School of Journalism. I went to that graduation. I didn't go to the giant one where you sat out in the field and baked under the sun. (laughs) Didn't sound like much fun to me or my parents. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't sound like fun to me either. That's why I ditched it. But I know some people are into that and Paige missed it. So (laughs) sorry, Paige. So Paige, let's go ahead and give you the quick answer. Yes. Get your feet wet and go ahead and start investing now. Uh, That student loan debt isn't ideal, but reasonably low interest rates uh, on student loan debt isn't all that bad Um, and the thing is too you might be able to get that even lower i know you said that you have recently refinanced but that might be something that's worth looking into again you might be able to get a fixed interest rate in the low to mid three percent range maybe down even into the high twos and a lower interest rate makes investing an even better decision for your extra funds Uh, so we would recommend you check out sites like sofi splash credible These are all online based financial institutions that make refinancing easy. Plus refinancing private student loan debt is free. So if other listeners out there have never done that, that's definitely a benefit to looking at refinancing.
1: Yeah. And if you are able to refi page, I know you said you did it recently, but recently could mean four or five months ago and rates have dropped a good bit since then. So if you're able to refi into that uber low interest rate, then investing makes even more sense. And so why are we so keen on you getting started investing as opposed to paying down that debt even more quickly? Well, part of the reason that we're so keen to have you start investing now is, well, it, of course, it's the compounding returns that you're going to experience throughout the years. But there's also this other element to it, right? It's it's also behaviorally powerful to begin to get started early on, right? In your working career, there's something about becoming an investor early that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. As you begin investing, you kind of start to think of yourself as like an investor, right? Like quote unquote, an investor. And once you start you're likely to become an investor for life. So there's something so powerful about actually getting started, beginning the process, and feeling like you are an investor. It gets you interested in it from the get-go. So I would say go ahead and open up a Roth IRA until that 401k becomes available through your work. That way you're getting started, you're on the right track, and you know what? You're probably going to be investing for the rest of your life, which is great news.
0: Yeah, just like we used to say, it's like flexing that muscle. You know, you, you build these habits and these practices of investing, you know, a portion of your paycheck every single month. And that just becomes something that you're used to doing. And Paige, I think that's especially important too, with it being so early in your career. You're not used to receiving that full paycheck. You know, so let's start siphoning a little bit of that off to future Page. And also, this is all assuming that you have an emergency fund to give yourself some financial margin. If not, then that needs to take priority. Uh, But then assuming you have that emergency fund in place, when you are vested in your company's 401k, you know, a year from now, make sure that you start investing and grab that match if there is one. Uh, Since the match is essentially free money from your employer... That should even come before paying down any debts. You know, you can't beat a 100% return on your money. Yeah, unless it's like a payday loan because those are the worst. (laughs) Those are like 400%. (laughs) So
1: hopefully you don't have any of those, Paige. But uh, let's also to mention, I think when we're talking about young people investing, Matt, sometimes the forgotten topic is investing in yourself. And Paige, you're still young, right? You're fresh out of school. And some of the biggest payoffs come from a larger income as you improve your skills and take on increased responsibilities. The further you advance in your career, right, the more money you make, the more you can invest. So I would say don't shy away from using the money that you're earning to be able to attend a conference, if those still even exist right now. (laughs) Probably not. What conferences, Joel? (laughs) (laughs) Or taking continuing education, like whatever it is that's going to allow you to boost your skills boost your marketability, boost your earnings, it's important to parallel the idea of investing and saving well for the future with the idea of investing in yourself for the future, because that's going to pay potentially even bigger dividends as you maybe pivot to another company, another field, starting your own business, all these different things. You just want to make sure that you're not forgetting about investing in yourself to be able to grow the overall earning potential for yourself. All right, Matt, let's get to the next question. This one is about how to purchase a large item, specifically a car, because I know that this can be done improperly and it can cause a lot of headaches.
0: Hi, Matt and Joel. This is Andy from Ogden, Utah. I recently made a purchase of a new to me used vehicle by going down to the bank and getting a cashier's check to be able to pay the person I bought it from. I've had to do this a couple times over the last decade or so. And I'm just curious if there's any other option to be able to make a large purchase like this without having to go to a bank and get the money or get a cashier's check. I know Matt had advocated to leave brick and mortar banks in a recent episode. So how would you overcome an obstacle like making a large purchase like this without having that ability to be able to go and get the money right out of the bank? Thanks a lot. I look forward to the answer. And hope you guys are weathering the storm. And I'll try to bring you some tasty Utah beers this summer when I come back to Georgia. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, Joel, this is from our, our friend of the show, Andy. He brought us some beers last year that we actually had on the show. So Andy, great to hear from you. And I hope that you know this pandemic doesn't hamper your summer travels. And I did mention that I've been proudly free of my big brick and mortar bank For a while now. But you do have a great question here for us to address. And the first thing to consider uh, are credit unions, right? While we're not fans of of the big banks, we're all about credit unions. I purchased our last car from Carvana. So I haven't been in your exact situation. But if I were and I needed guaranteed funds to give an individual, say, for the purchase of a used car, I would get a cashier's check from my local credit union that I have an account with. Um, Oftentimes, these are called official checks, uh, but essentially, they're the same as cashier's checks. And so I want to point out that we don't dislike brick and mortar banks. It's that we dislike the big banks, which oftentimes are in these brick and mortar locations that we often see while we're driving around town.
1: Yeah, there's a big difference between the giant banks and the local community banks and credit unions that serve people a, a whole lot better with a lot less fees, right? Matt, what I would do, I would hand somebody a piece of construction paper that said Bitcoin. And I would <laughs>
0: I would just assume they would take that, right? Well, at least kind of colored in with like colored pencil, maybe laminate it so it looks official. Oh, I'll make it look legit. <laughs> if they don't accept it, they don't know what Bitcoin is. But
1: yeah, so uh, I think to Andy, one other thing that people are paying with more frequently these days besides Bitcoin uh, is is the apps, right? Cash app venmo paypal and those are those are some awesome apps right i think they do help in a lot of ways they help make our lives more clutter and paper free and germ free too right now which is important they've done a good job at digitizing the small cash that we keep on hand for minor transactions and you can send up to five thousand bucks according to venmo and you could potentially buy a decent used car with that kind of money right paypal allows up to sixty thousand dollars but be careful using these apps because there's a potential that the buyer could attempt to claw that money back and and there's no fraud protection with venmo or paypal and payments that look completed well they're not always completed right so so i would say avoid those apps for doing business with anybody that you don't actually know if you're settling up a restaurant bill amongst friends paying your lawn person whatever it might be then that is okay but paying someone you don't know at all uh, for a really expensive purchase like a car, I, w- I would not use one of these apps for that.
0: Yeah, well, just like with a cashier's check, they're they're not completely bulletproof because you could potentially get a fraudulent cashier's check or an official check if you know if you're the seller and you're the one accepting. The uh, the money. That's one of the ways that these apps are similar. The money would show up in your account, and you think it's good to go. But then the person who sent you that money can cancel that transaction, and you're left without that money. So if you ever are using a cashier's check or using these different apps, you, like there's a degree of trust that goes into these transactions, and so you kind of have to use some of your your own judgment depending on the size of the transaction.
1: Yeah, that's why I think my favorite piece of advice for people looking to buy or sell a car, in particular, is to meet the seller at their bank right? When they're getting the cashier's check or when they're pulling the cash out, it's the safest place to do the transaction anyway. There's all sorts of shady places, right? To do a deal and to buy that car. But the least shady place of all is to do it at that person's bank, right? They feel comfortable. You feel comfortable. If you need a notary, right? To be able to notarize the bill of sale, there's often a notary on hand at a local bank too. So yeah, I would say if you're the buyer in particular, meeting at that person's bank in order to finalize the transaction is is a great place to do it.
0: And so, if you're the one doing the buying, you know, if, if I was the buyer, I'm going to find the most convenient way for me to be able to give them payment. But as the seller, I'm not looking to rip somebody off and cheat them, right? <laughs> but if I was the seller, I'm going to make sure I'm, I'm going to be extra careful. And so, the only true guaranteed way of getting paid is cash. So, Joel, like you mentioned, you know, making sure that transaction happens at a bank, the teller can immediately verify whether or not that money is counterfeit or not, and you can have a very clean transaction. But that's again, assuming that you have a local branch to go to. And we would recommend that with a local small bank or like we mentioned, a local credit union, as they oftentimes have the best rates when it comes to different loan products as well. So while we do love our online savings accounts, because they are still offering the best interest rates, even though they have decreased over the months, uh, having a relationship with them in addition to having a relationship with a local small bank or a local credit union, that's totally the way to go. There's a spot for both of them within each of our personal finances and not to mention some of the conveniences that having a local credit union offers as well. Yeah, completely. And, and most of us don't really buy cars or sell cars frequently.
1: So I think it's easy for us to get taken advantage of or go about it the wrong way. And so making sure that you're prioritizing your safety and while at the same time verifying uh, the, the payment method I think doing the actual transaction at a bank actually accomplishes both of those things quite well. So yeah, that's what we would recommend. All right. That's going to be it for listener questions, Matt. Let's get back to the beer that we had on the show. Today, we drank a really nice beer called Inexplicable Unease, which that's the way I feel around you. It's uh, I can't explain it. It's hard to <laughs> put my finger on it. But
0: I was going to say a lot of people are probably feeling that these days in the, <laughs> with the world that we live in. Not right. about their best buddy, but you know, to each their own. <laughs> what, what did you think this beer i'm just joking by the way oh i know uh this was a really good one man it, you know i'll say as we poured it poured that hazy golden color so it definitely set itself up to kind of be a new england style ipa but this is a sour ipa and man it was so stinking good it totally had that bite uh, that you associate with new england ipas and the hops there but the sour and kind of almost bitter element added to that sharpness as well it, it, it sort of made it taste more like a new england style ipa than maybe they were expecting it kind of reminded me of quinine, which is like that tonic water. Yeah, it's the chemical in tonic water, and I'm pretty sure that's what kind of makes it taste a little bit bitter. But to me, this almost had elements of tonic in it, in addition to sort of the, the some of the juicy notes that you get from the hops. I've not had many sour IPAs ever in my life, but of the few that I've had, I've really enjoyed them. So I'm definitely going to look more to, to sour IPAs on some of the different menus around town. Yeah, I really like that style. And I
1: agree. There aren't many of them out there. This one, yeah, it calls itself a sour IPA, but but it's just slightly
0: sour, right? It, it's not it's super not tart. Aggressively tart or anything like that. Yeah. Just, just enough to kind of give it a little sparkle.
1: Yeah. And I would say it had like this nice pillowy mouthfeel. And the, the beer wine hybrid is kind of like a hot segment of the craft beer market now. People are going for wine grapes inside of craft beers and i really kind of like that style it's it's different it's nuanced it's unique but i thought these guys pulled it off incredibly well this was a great beer part of the reason matt i had to pick this beer up when i saw it in in the cooler at our local market was it says it was it's brewed with Gewürztraminer grapes is that how you say that so apparently my dad (laughs) doesn't know that though so my dad he bought a bottle of Gewürztraminer for thanksgiving one year okay and he called it Goosemeister. (laughs) And so we've been teasing him for years about that, but he buys it every We're single day. never going to let it go, huh? Well, he, he calls it that now
0: yeah, for fun. It's a
1: thing. Yeah. yeah. And so we get Goosemeister every year for Thanksgiving, and I saw, holy crap, this beer has Gewürztraminer grapes in it. It's got the Goosemeister going on. We got to give this one a shot. <laughs> so my dad will be proud that we drank this beer on the show. And yeah, I just, I really enjoyed this one. Um, nice little gentle sour IPA. Really, really tasty. So, all right, Matt, that's going to do it for this
0: episode. And for folks that want
1: show notes for this episode, well, you can go to our website, howtomoney.com.
0: And if you're listening to this episode and you're not already subscribed, please hit subscribe. We want to make sure that you don't miss any episodes. And if you haven't already, head over to Apple Podcasts where you can mash that five stars, maybe even leave us some kind words over there. We would really appreciate it. Most deaf. All right, Matt, until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out.